By now you know we're on the very last sermon series on our stained glass windows. We're at the one that is at the front of the church. We call it the end times window. We've had two sermons, and I would urge you, if you didn't get in on the first two, there will be six total. Uh, if you can't be here for everyone, I would urge you, please go on the website and listen and, so you can get the full uh, message on the end times. And it's not a full message, but the full six messages we are giving. We have a dryer, a clothes dryer. And about a couple of minutes before the cycle is done, a loud buzzer goes off. And it's to warn us that the cycle is almost over and if we get the clothes out more quickly, there's less chance of wrinkles happening. My wife is much more alert to the buzzer than am I. We're almost to the football season and the football is beginning. There is a two-minute warning at the end of each half, and it's the one that really matters is the one at the end of the game. It's to let the coaches and players know that there's not much time left to make a difference in the game. Today, we are looking at God's two-minute warning for a wayward world. God's two-minute warning for a wayward world. I am not going to put our text for the day up on the screen. You can turn to it. It's Revelation 6, verses, 14, verses 6 to 12. In the Pew Bible, it's page 1036. Revelation 14, 6 to 12. Keep it open as we will refer to it. In preparation for this sermon, I read a book by a friend and colleague that I've known for many years. His name is John Anderson. The book title is Three Angels, One Message. Three Angels, One Message. I highly recommend it. Today, obviously, in one sermon, we're not going to have the opportunity to, to explain each one of the symbols and how we've arrived at the meaning of those symbols, such as the wine of wrath and, and such, as, such things as smoke going up forever and ever. There's just not enough time. We're not even going to have enough time to get into the major uh, symbols, such as, we will mention it and we will talk about it, but Babylon, but to prove it and to show where it comes from, or the mark of the beast, we will talk about it, but we won't have time to prove it and show where it comes from. While this book takes the traditional, and I say that not meaning badly, the, the, the usual approach of the Seventh-day Adventist Church to these three messages, he does it in a way that I found very appealing and winsome. And if you've wondered about the messages, I would urge you to get the book and read it. I talked to him yesterday. I ran a couple of the ideas by him and, uh, that I was going to present, and I told him I was going to promote his book, and he kind of said, John's a very self-effacing person if anybody knows him. He said, well, you don't have to do that, but thank you very much. So for my buddy John, I'm not promoting my own book, but it's his book, and uh, it has wonderful insights. For those of you who aren't aware and do not know much about the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church believes that God has given us a, a lady to, who he inspired to be a spokesperson for him for our church. 
And in the sermon, while I will be primarily referring to Revelation 14, I'll also use three quotes from hers, which I think we need to look at. The first one is found in a letter, number 97. It's quoted in the book Evangelism, page 196. It's speaking, the context is about the three angels' messages. And she writes, we shall have to study earnestly, prayerfully, in order to understand these grand truths, and our power to learn and comprehend will be taxed to the utmost. Let me ask you a question, two questions. Did you notice the date? It was not 1848. It was not 1860. It was 1902. In other words, after the Adventist church had been proclaiming this message for nearly 40 years, almost 60, 50 to 60 years, she's saying that there's still something more to be lean, learned and to be gleaned from this text. She's saying that there is something in this messages of the three angels that will that we need to grapple with and we need to, to work at and it will tax us to understand it in its complexity. As we be, before we even begin to look at Revelation 14 and the three angels, I would remind you of, of something that's very important for the entire book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has not a thread running through it. It has a huge rope running through it. It's what holds all of Revelation together. It's found in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That can mean two things. It can mean that it's a revelation given by him, but it also can mean it's a revelation about him, and both are true of this book. If we forget that the revelation is about Jesus Christ, we lose our balance and the proper perspective as we study it and learn from the lessons of the various parts of Revelation. And so I would remind you that while Revelation, as this verse says, is written to show his servants what must soon take place, it was written so that we might understand the future events in the light of who Jesus is, in the light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us and what he's going to do as he seeks along with God the Father and God the Spirit to solve the problem of sin in our world. There are three principles that we're going to look at before we even get into the, into the uh, Revelation 14. Did I miss one? Let me back up. There's one more quote I wanted to read. It's stuck to the previous page. There we go. Did we get it yet? The longer quote. I may have gotten the one that says, of all professing Christians. Okay? I think I got it out of order, but we're going to use it here. Of all professing Christians, Seventh-day Adventists should be, most, should be foremost in uplifting Christ before the world. The proclamation of the third angel's messages calls for the presentation of the Sabbath truth. This truth with others included in the message is to be proclaimed. But notice the next phrase. 
But the great center of attraction, Christ Jesus, must not be left out. It is at the cross of Christ that mercy and truth meet together and righteousness and peace kiss each other. The sinner must be led to look to Calvary with the simple faith of a little child. He must trust in the merits of the Savior, accepting His righteousness, believing in His mercy. What she is saying is she's acknowledging that it's possible to give the three angels' message and leave Jesus out of the center. And she says we can't afford to do that. Before looking at those three messages, I do want to go through three principles that we must keep in mind as we study the messages. Principle number one, the gospel is the unifying message that unites all three. The first, second, and third angel must be understood in light of the gospel. We do not understand the gospel in the light of the, third, of the three messages. In other words, it is the gospel that defines the messages of the three angels. Their messages do not define the gospel. While they are part of the gospel, they must be understood in the totality of the gospel message. We'll cover that in a few moments. The second principle. The three angels' messages are connected and must be understood and given in the order they are listed. It doesn't make sense to warn somebody that they may be following the wrong person or, or, or worshiping on the wrong day if they don't even know what it means to have God in their life. It doesn't make sense to encourage someone to worship on Sabbath and experience the rest of God if they don't understand the gospel and what it means to trust Him for salvation. Does it? The three angels' messages are connected and must be understood and given in the order they are listed as people are ready to receive them. Principle number three. When giving the three angels' messages, we must appeal to people out of love and not out of fear. We must appeal to them to accept the messages, not out of fear, but out of love. We love him because he first loved us, John said. He didn't say we fear him because of what he might do to us. And let's be honest, we haven't always heard or given the three angels' messages in a way that wins people out of love instead of out of fear. In fact, in the history of the Adventist church, when the first announcement of the hour of his judgment has come, there were a number of people who accepted that message and started believing it and teaching it. But the history shows that many walked away from it because they had accepted it out of fear and not out of love. With those three principles in mind, we are going to look at the fact now that there are three themes. We've got three principles and three themes in the third angel's message, three angel's messages. I want to look at the three themes that we find in the three angel's messages. Theme number one, 
is found in Revelation 14 in verse 6. I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. The first theme is the everlasting gospel. You say, what's the question mark all about? Well, there are those who read these three messages and they say, where is the gospel in Babylon is fallen? Where is the gospel in the smoke of their torment rising forever? I would remind you of two very familiar passages of Scripture. John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's gospel. That whoever believes in him should not what? The warning against perish is given in John 3, 16. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, there's no point in Jesus coming to die for us if everyone's going to be saved anyway. There's no point in in him saying, I took the sins of the world upon me as part of the gospel, and I was resurrected so that your life might be transformed if he doesn't give people the opportunity to accept or reject him, and those who reject him will receive what they've asked for. We'll talk about that in a moment. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is... The wages of sin is... But the gift of God is through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the middle of presenting the gospel in Romans, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. And so while there may be some unpleasant aspects to the three angels' messages, it still is steeped in the gospel because we need to know that God is saving us from death. And he longs to give us eternal life. What kind of God would he be if he never dealt with sin and allowed sin to go on and on forever? He would be a monster God. Ellen White, speaking of the fact that the three angels' messages is about the gospel, wrote the following in 1890. This was during the time when the message of righteousness by faith was being uh, questioned and, and, and encouraged in the Adventist church. And she said several had written to them inquiring if the message of the justification by faith or righteousness by faith is the third angel's message because they were afraid that the message of righteousness by faith would take and, and demean and, and lessen the third angel's message. And she said, I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity or in truth or in its totality. We must never forget that the theme of the three angels, the theme that goes through all three, is the gospel that we're saved by faith, by grace through faith. And it's not of our own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. The second theme is man's worship. And I'll give you the third theme now, and then we'll go back to the second one. The third theme is God's judgment. Those are the three themes of Revelation 14, of the three angels' messages. Let's go back and look at the first three of the messages and look at 
how they reveal man's worship. Chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, especially verse 7. He says with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to Him, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Did you notice, and I put the, the lettering in, in, in blue for a reason, did you notice that those, first, those things in blue, those first things we're called to do, are really rewording of the first four commandments? The first angel's message is a call, an invitation to people to return to God and to worship God and Him alone. Fear God is the positive way of saying, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Give glory to Him is, is the positive way of saying you're not to have any other idols or images that you bow down and pray to and who you thank for the answers to your prayers. The next one's a little not quite so obvious. The hour of His judgment has come. The third commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The word name stands for His character. You're not to take His character in vain. And while it does include swearing and, and using God's name in a flippant way, it primarily refused to saying, I am a follower of God, I am a Christian, but living your life as if it didn't matter. And isn't that what the judgment message is all about? That God takes and looks at the records and sees those who have claimed to be Christians and to see if they've truly accepted his righteousness, if they've truly been willing to be transformed by his power, if they are truly willing to be his sons and daughters in ways they never thought possible for themselves. And of course, the last one, in worship him who made heaven and the earth and the sea, is a direct quote from the fourth commandment. Do not get me wrong. I'm not denying the emphasis that is being given here and that will lead to the next two, the next two angels, the emphasis on God's judgment. But that's the next thread. And the emphasis on, uh, on the Sabbath. But I want you to see that the first angel's message is a call to return to worship the creator God of the universe. It's a return to worship the creator God of the universe. The second angel begins his message. And it says another angel follows, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, who made all nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sex sexual immorality. What that last phrase means, I urge you to get Pastor John's book, okay? Who is Babylon? Seventh-day Adventists are not alone in believing that Babylon refers to Rome. It refers to the institution of the papacy. There are those who doubt that and those who want to say that's not so. Many Protestant churches start out believing that. But we stand, on the, we stand on what the Reformers taught and believed. But once again, I just want to reemphasize, re it's about a system, and it's not about individual members in a church. But before we get too far on, on talking about that, let's look at what it means Babylon has fallen. What made Babylon fall? And in order to understand that, you have to understand the history of Babylon itself. Babylon goes back to the Tower of what? Babel. And the Tower of Babel happened when, after the flood, 
And God had promised he would not destroy the earth by flood again. And after he commanded Noah's descendants that they were to go out and spread abroad the earth and be fruitful and multiply. After they'd done that for a while, they hadn't really spread out yet, apparently. Because when you read Genesis 11, in spite of what most of us think, that the reason they built the tower was simply because they were afraid of another flood coming. No. Go back and read it. They built the tower because they said, we don't want to disperse. We're happy being together. We don't want to cover the earth as God has commanded us. And we know what happened last time when we disobeyed God. He sent a flood. So we're going to stay together, and we're going to build a city. We're not going to disperse over the earth, and we'll build a tower to save ourselves from God. Go down the line to Babylon of the Old Testament. And in Daniel chapter 4, you see the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, standing up and saying, Isn't this Babylon the great city that, wahoo, I have made? Look what I have done. And then later you have Belteshazzar, who'd heard that God of Israel had prophesied that his kingdom would be taken from him. And he knew that the 70 years was almost up, and he said, I don't have to worry. I've got this great moat and a river running through. I've got the greatest city in all the world. Look what, I, what has been built. I don't believe God can hurt me. I'm taking care of myself. Thank you. You see, the defining mark of Babylon is that Babylon always, always, always seeks to save itself apart from God. Apart from God. I want you to think about that a moment. If that's true, you don't have to belong to Babylon to be in Babylon. Catch my point? If in any way you think that what you do earns you favor with God, or if any way you think that what you do makes it possible for God to save you, then you're part of Babylon. And that's a scary thought. And while we, attend, we identify Babylon with with the papacy, I would like to suggest to you that at the end of time, it may be much broader and will be much broader than that. There are so many different organizations that teach you that you have to save yourself. That includes the Muslim religion. That includes secularism. That includes so much of our society. And it even can include people who keep a Sabbath day. I would like to just remind you of something. Let me back up a bit. I debated using this as I was sitting there. I am going to use it. No offense, Lucas. You've got to change your word in that last song. It says that we are defended by our, right, by our righteousness. We're defended by his. Ch would you change that for me next time? Do you understand what I'm saying? 
we are defended by his. So the, the announcement of the fall is Babylon. Where you see worship in here is based on whether or not you are worshiping God and, and, and acknowledging that God is the one who redeemed you, created you and redeemed you, or if you think that your being redeemed is up to you. And we can do that in such subtle ways. Let's go on to the third angel's message. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, now notice the words here, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath. It's the issue of worshiping a false god. And the Adventists have believed and taught that the mark of the beast is going to be Sunday observance at the end of time. That makes some people nervous to say that. As I restudied this passage, it's really what makes the most sense. As I looked at just two or three commentaries, more out of curiosity than anything, I discovered that most commentaries skip over this whole thing. They have no answers. They, have no, they don't even postulate what it might be. Some more conservative evangelical preachers and teachers will, will say it's, it's, a, it's a computer chip, it's a credit card number, it's a chip that will be put in your head, but that doesn't make sense because it doesn't follow that this is a system that's been in place for, for centuries when you study it from the Bible. But I want to go just a little deeper into what it means to, to worship the beast in its image and receive its mark. You see, the Sabbath is memorial to two things, not one. The Sabbath is a memorial to the fact, according to Exodus 20, when God first gave the Ten Commandments, it's a memorial of the fact that He is the one who created us, right? For in six days the Lord made heaven, earth, and sea. In Deuteronomy 5, just before Israel entered the Promised Land, it says, you are to keep the Sabbath because you are to remember that I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out with my strong arm and with my mighty hand. It's a symbol of the fact that he is the Lord who saves us as well. The two great marks of God's love for us is the fact that he created us and he redeemed us. We serve a creator-redeemer God. And the Sabbath contains both elements of why we worship God on the day he created for worship. Because it reminds us that we depend on him as, as his creatures. And it reminds us that we depend on him for our salvation. And that's why, that's why a different day of worship is the sign at the end of time for depending on ourselves or depending on another person or another institution. And so, the Sabbath, we believe, is the mark. But let's go back. Let's go back and look at the aspect of God's judgment in the first angel. And it's very easy to find it in, in verse 7 where it says, the hour of his judgment has come, has come. As Seventh-day Adventists, we believe that that began in 1844 with the investigative judgment. If you haven't studied on that recently, the Sabbath school quarterly next Sabbath will be looking at that. 
Or you can get my friend John's book. I almost sound like I'm hawking something. I'm not hawking a book. I'm hawking a good presentation, okay? It'd be a good thing to read. But I want you to notice something else. It says the hour of his judgment has come, and I underlined the springs of water. It wasn't until I read my friend's book that I realized what that springs of water was all about. Had any of you ever made a connection about the springs of water before? It's not in the fourth commandment. I've often wondered about that. It's only mentioned one other time in Scripture. Guess where? The flood. The flood. Now what's interesting about the flood and the story of the flood is the story of the flood is a reversal of the story of creation. You remember creation? It says that there was water upon the face of the earth and the spirit moved upon the water. And that word spirit in Hebrew means both spirit and wind. And the spirit moved upon the water and dry land came up. But because of sin, God sent a flood that once again put the earth under water until the rain stopped and then it says a wind came and dried up the water again. Why? Because God was telling them, I'm going to start a new creation. I want a new start again. It didn't really work out as well as God had hoped and planned. And so when when it says here, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and reminds them that they're worshiping him because he is the one who made the heaven and earth, but he's also the one who has the capability to destroy when sin gets so bad. It's a reminder of a past judgment. Chapter 8, the second angel talks about God's judgment. Another angel followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. How is that judgment? Remember the story of Belshazzar. I already alluded to it. He's sitting in his palace thinking that he's, he's just got it made. He's a self-made man. God can't touch him. And to prove that Israel's God can't touch him, I stepped on the cord, sorry, Prove that Israel's God can't touch him. He called for all the, all the utensils and all the sacred vessels from the sanctuary, from God's sanctuary. And he decided to use them for putting all their fancy foods and, and their wines and all those kind of things in as they celebrated how wonderful Babylon was. And you remember what took place. A finger appeared that said, you are weighed in the balances and found what? Wanting. You are weighed in the balances and found wanting. A judgment message. And it was at that point, at that very night, that Babylon indeed, the literal Babylon, fell. And that fall was going to take place again. And it happened when, when pagan Rome fell and will happen again at the end of time. The third message has a message of judgment it says if anyone worships the beast in its image in verse 9 and receives the mark they will drink of the wine of God's wrath poured out full strength into the cup of his anger or indignation and they will be tormented with fire and sulfur that's that's the final judgment and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever now that forever and ever we understand as, as Adventist means until, until time ends for them. 
the smoke of their torment goes up until there's no more to be burned from a number of scriptures. But I want you to notice something. Something I hadn't seen. In fact, as I was rereading the passage this morning, saw it for the first time. In the midst of this probably most frightful of the three angels' messages, there is a one-word description of Jesus. It's the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain from the foundations of the world. Those who are destroyed because they chose to rebel against God and God withdrew His, his protective, saving grace from them. Even though re- People receive grace from God even if they don't believe in Him yet because without His grace, no one would be alive. And so God withdraws His grace and His protection and the Spirit and they will experience the results of their sins. What happens when you live apart from God? But I want you to notice what it says. When he withdraws that, they see that take place. They are in the presence of the Lamb. They are in the presence of the one who died for them, but who they refuse to accept. They are in the presence of the one who said, I love you so much, I am going to give my life in your place. And they said, no, thank you. I'll take care of my life myself. When the third angel gives its warning message about judgment that's going to take place, the third angel reminds us that judgment takes place because people refuse to accept the salvation offered by the Lamb. And sometimes I think we're more interested in identifying Babylon and the mark of the beast and the beast than we are with identifying ourselves with the Lamb. We have a warning message to give. But it's not just a warning. It's not just a warning. It's a message of hope. It's a message about a lamb who who chose to come to this earth and to die in our place so that anyone who believes might not perish but have everlasting life. Sometimes it comes to me that we're not preaching the three angels as we should, and and there's probably truth in that. But I would just like to, to ask you to think about something for a second. If the if the thread, the three threads are the gospel, if I'm proclaiming the gospel to someone who hasn't accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior yet, even if I never mention the first angel, am I proclaiming that message? And the answer is yes. If I'm warning people about the fact that you cannot save yourselves, there's nothing you can do, you must trust in the merits of Jesus. Am I giving the second angel's message? Yes. If I'm sharing the Sabbath with someone, even if I don't mention the third angel, and I say to them, God, the creator, redeemer, God, has given us a day upon which we are to worship. It's a day that has been kept ever since the creation. And it's a day we are told in Isaiah will be kept for eternity. 
Am I giving the third angel's message? The answer is yes. Now, there may come a time when they're ready to hear it within the context that's given here of a warning to say, if you don't accept it, you need to know. But may I suggest to you, and since I'm speaking, I will, that we may be giving the third angels and three angels messages more often than we even realize ourselves. The word gospel was never mentioned. The word forgiveness was never mentioned. But when Kelly texted an apology to someone she didn't even know, she was presenting the gospel in living color. Right? There's something else interesting at the end at the end of Revelation 14, at the end of the three angels' messages, it's verse 12. Now, what's here is not from any translation. It's the literal translation of the Greek. It's the literal translation of the Greek. This is how this verse should read. If you're wondering how we're going to make it through when there's a time of trouble, when people are receiving the mark of the beast or receiving uh, the mark of God, how are we going to make it through? The answer is in verse 12. Here is the endurance of the saints. I'm sorry, here the endurance of the saints is. The endurance of the saints is. They are the ones keeping the commands of God. They're obedient. And they're keeping the faith, not in Jesus, as most translations put it. They are keeping the faith of Jesus. That little preposition means a whole lot. What it's saying is, is that God wants to give us the very same faith that Jesus had. That when Jesus was on this earth, Jesus said, I hear what my Father tells me to do and I do it. What Jesus said was, I do what my Father tells me to do. What Jesus said, I am trusting in what my Father designs me to do. I say what He tells me to say. The endurance of the saints takes place because we have the same faith Jesus did, to trust Him to provide that which we need. Josie talked, Pastor Josie talked a bit about the fact that the signs say Jesus is coming soon. I talked about it two weeks ago. I may not have done the best job, so I want to end by just reminding you. And Taylor, you asked me this question out in the foyer, out in the hallway. Jesus is coming soon. Can we keep saying that when we've been a denomination for since 1860 officially? Yes, we can. The signs are more clear, aren't they? The signs have always been clear. You can go back and read Christian history and read where people said Jesus has to be coming soon because the signs are fulfilled. I'm not demeaning the signs. Jesus is coming soon because my lifetime on this earth has gone by this quickly. Believe it or not, kids, I was a teenager not that many years ago. It, it was just a few short seconds ago. And now I'm in the last third of my life, roughly. And I'm told by some it's more downhill than 
anything else. Jesus is coming soon because whether he comes in two, three, or four years, or whether he comes in 2000, I don't see how that can happen. I'm not saying he's, it won't happen and he's coming soon. But if it's 2,000 years, what is 2,000 more years in light of eternity? But he is coming soon for all of us. And we have a warning message to give people who live on this earth only for a very brief period of time. We need to share with them the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Lamb, died for them. We need to share with them the good news that they don't have to save themselves, that God saves them and they need to trust in him. And we need to share with them the good news that we can rest and worship the creator, redeemer God who loved us so much that he put a plan in place so that we could live with him forever. That's the good news. That's the good news of the three angels. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to be part of giving that message. Help us to look for more opportunities to share it. And not just opportunities to share it, but to share it in ways that the person, people we are meeting are ready to hear in the ways they need to hear it. Thank you that you are coming soon. Even so, come Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.